at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. Um, I'm very grateful to have with me today uh, one of my colleagues at, at the center, but also someone that I deeply appreciate as a friend, and this is Dr. Tarin Taylor. And just to give you a little bit of background, uh, Tarin is doing research on, on fatigue as a social construct, as well as on the use of qualitative methodologies to enhance simulation-based medical education research. Two seemingly divergent topics, but I'm sure we will get the gist into how she ended up in, in these two areas and how she's planning to connect them in some way or form as we go. Welcome, Tarin, to this episode. Thanks very much, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here speaking with you. Thank you. So you reminded me the other day that we met at a, a what was that? Um, oh, Toastmasters. That. Toastmasters. I was trying to become a better speaker. <laughs> I didn't make it, but it was great to, to get to meet you there. And then you came to the center and then you started to engage with us as a, as a medical student first and then as a resident and then the PhD and the whole story goes. So I feel that I, I know you a lot as a researcher. And I was wondering if we could start by you sharing with us uh, something or what is it about yourself without telling us about your research? Who is starting? Oh. Who is Taryn Taylor? So, <laughs> so many directions this could go. I mean, there are other professional hats that I wear, certainly. Um, that's the easiest to speak about. So I also work as an obstetrician gynecologist, and I'm, I'm a generalist in that capacity. So I look after patients across their reproductive lifespan. Um, and that's been just a wonderful part of my life. And the joke is that um, although I didn't set out in medicine to be an obstetrician gynecologist, um, my mother is and was a public health nurse specializing in sexual health. Um, and so she, the secret is that she was probably priming me for this my entire life. I just didn't realize it until, you know, looking back in retrospect. Um, so that's one piece about me. But again, that's something a lot of people know. I think something that um, about my personal life that, that some people may not know is that uh, I enjoy when time and COVID permits, uh, sort of trying my hand at uh, flying trapeze. Um, we have talked about some of the other activities that I do. The the climbing um, is is another one, and um, and you know I I really enjoy that feeling of of letting go and flying. And trapeze is a perfect place to do that. Although sadly, there's no flying trapeze uh, circus schools here in London, so you have to travel to Toronto to have the the full experience. We'll touch a little bit more on that because <laughs> I'm I'm captivated by your willingness to be able to fly, which I find terrifying, but we'll see. So sure. um, what, what brought you into medical education as a community? I remember you coming to the center, I think as a medical student, you were doing some project with some faculty and then it transitioned. So what happened there? Yeah, so it was actually as a resident, uh, we are mandated to do a research project. I had very, very little experience with research prior to starting medical school and even residency. And so I met with one of my obstetrical preceptors and kind of came with a list of things I was 
interested in. It was a very random assortment of things. And, and so she carefully guided me towards a project that we started, which was my first time experiencing qualitative research. It was a mixed method studies exploring the experiences of pregnant women with obesity um, all the way through from the start of their first clinical encounter. You know, what was their experience of the waiting rooms? Where did they experience stigma? Um, you know, how did they feel about being weighed at each appointment? Um, what are their perceptions and experiences of even having their ultrasounds performed because there's some technical challenges there. Um, and so that project was something I was very excited about. I really loved qualitative research. Um, it was a little bit of a trial and error uh, process, but in any event, I, I think I, I, my passion for it was evident. And so my preceptor at the time advised me to consider looking into the clinical investigator program, which is a very fantastic program offered through Western and a few other universities whereby um, medical residents can actually sort of step away from their training for a short time to pursue graduate studies. Um, and so for better or for worse, my preceptor actually sort of gave me carte blanche. She did not expect me to, to finish that research project, which was you know, admittedly quite lofty. It was actually three projects in one and, and certainly more than a, a resident working full-time would be able to, to pull off. And so she sort of just encouraged me to go with my gut. And I had taken an interest in medical education, you know, primarily because I was experiencing it day to day. Um, and so that was what led me to Siri, actually, through kind of word of mouth connections, people saying, you know, you got to check out this, this research center at Western. Uh, and so I landed in Dr. Lorelai Lingard's office with a few kind of half baked ideas, a lot of enthusiasm, I think, which is perhaps why Lorelai was interested in continuing the conversations, because again, I had very little research research experience, uh, and mostly half-baked ideas. So what was in that interaction? Because I, I'm hearing that you had a lot of challenges. You were taking on many things on your plate, but yet you still decided to do a PhD, even though you were doing a residency. Like what right. happened in there in between yeah. that, that really <laughs> do that. Right. So I, I think a big part of that transition. So the initial plan um, for the clinical investigator program was to do a master's because I, I do, did not have a master's prior to entering medical school. And so it was it was an opportune time because Western was just starting to just had just made the connection with Maastricht and University of British Columbia to offer the Masters of Health Professions education. And so it was a really opportune time to be coming in and, and joining into this kind of fresh program. While I was in the master's, while I really enjoyed the coursework because it was obviously salient to my day-to-day -day experience, I was having these kind of meta experiences of learning about, you know, pedagogy and best practices and evaluation and assessment. And at the same time, I was, you know, fully embedded in my residency program being assessed, uh, you know, engaged in, in education, you know, lectures and seminars and rounds and things like that. And so it was a really cool experience. And I loved the research that I was doing at the time as well. And so um, a few of my mentors had sort of broached the idea that maybe I could consider shifting from the master's to the PhD because some of the research questions I was asking would likely lend themselves to multiple projects. And therefore, if I was going to do the work anyway, which I was committed to doing, then I should just, you know, go go all out and, and pursue the PhD stream. And so I didn't finish the, like a few of the final um, 
uh, units of coursework and, and switched full-time to doing the research projects. And because a PhD is, a, is such an intense time of your life and you put a lot of effort in doing that, usually um, what, I was being, what I was encouraged to do is to try to find what would be my interest. And, and I'm always curious to know how people develop interest in certain topics and not others. And some of those interests are come from very personal experiences and you have shared with me offline some of your experiences and you mentioned that you will be willing to share with us. So would you mind sharing with us that connection between your personal life and what ended up being your PhD research topic? Absolutely. So spend a lot of time thinking and reflecting on this. And as you said, I haven't really shared parts of this story publicly for reasons that will become clear in a moment. But when I initially came to Lorelei, I mentioned there were lots of half-baked ideas. One of the things I was really curious about was how residents spend their post-call time. So um, typically in most residency programs, specifically a lot of the surgical and, and very intense um, like internal medicine programs, uh, residents who are you know doctors in training spend upwards of 24 to 27 hours consecutively in the hospital, often during that time kind of denying themselves some of the kind of basic human necessities. So um, when you need to go to the washroom on call, um, sometimes that opportunity actually doesn't present itself. There's lots of emergencies and lots of patients to be seen and tasks to be done, many of which feel very urgent. And so you kind of push down your physiologic needs, the need to eat, the need to sleep, the need to go to the washroom, um, among many other, you know, also emotional needs, um, just to kind of make it through the, the shift and make sure that you're doing the best work that you can for the patients you look after. And so, um, you know, I had reflected on the fact that in my own life, post-call, um, I often found myself do doing very odd and kind of uncharacteristic things. So I often had a, like irrepressible craving for McDonald's. And so I would go there, which is the place that I wouldn't normally eat, um, or I would find myself doing like online shopping. And so in any event, I, I was intrigued by this kind of response to what I felt was my, my, my body's response to being um, sort of uh, immersed in the hospital and, and kind of denying my, my own personal needs for, for 24 to 27 hours. So that was where the research initially started and, and seemingly in kind of just a superficial sense of curiosity. But um, as my research evolved um, and was definitely shaped by some of the political things that were happening at the time around discussions with resident work hours and whether Canada should sort of join many other jurisdictions in legislating work hours, um, discussions around whether practicing physicians should actually have some sort of cap on their work hours and things like that. So there was this sort of political landscape around what was happening and changing in the conversations people were having about what was right and what was safe for uh, resident and physician work hours. But then also in my personal life at the time, I was actually um, being treated for like a sleep disorder. Um, and so uh, I think it's, again, in retrospect, much like my <laughs> trajectory and ending up in obstetrics and gynecology, you know, things, things look clearer in retrospect. And so I think a lot of that underlying passion for that work came out of my own experiences, my own experience of being someone who, especially at that time, you know, felt the weight of fatigue and sleep deprivation um, in a way that felt, you know, at times physically painful. And, um, you know, 
asking myself questions about whether or not I was going to be able to survive the intense and onerous work hours and sleep deprivation that was necessary in order to complete not only my residency training, but again, as an obstetrician gynecologist, those crazy hours and the being up all night, uh, dealing with acute emergencies, having to think on your feet, that does not end with residency. Um, that is very much a part of my life as an obstetrician gynecologist, um, particularly for the obstetrical side of, of my work. And so um, grappling with a lot of the, those questions definitely fueled my passion for exploring you know, how we talk about fatigue and how is it that in, in medicine, um, it's an expectation that, you know, these sort of high performing individuals with a very small margin of, uh, and room for error would be expected to just continue working almost robotically for, for such a sustained period of time. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Tarina. I know it's sometimes it's, it's deeply personal stories that are not easy to, to go through, but that drives our motivation. And this is a topic that, as we were attending this morning, the panel on taboo topics, it's a taboo for many people. So I was wondering if you can share with us uh, some of the challenges and also rewards that you have uh, experienced in doing this kind of research, that particular area of your research. Mm -hmm. I'll start with the risks because they're freshest in my mind and, and, and some of the challenges, I guess. I think a a big part of this is that when you're pursuing a line of scholarship that challenges the way we've always done things um, and, and critiques something that, that has so many layers to it. So fatigue and sleep deprivation and work hours is not just a labor issue. Um, it's also an educational issue. It's also a patient safety issue. Um, it's also an issue of wellness and well-being for the providers. And so um, there are, because it's so complex and there are um, so many different ways of looking at the problem, uh, it's very easy um, for people to receive your work um, in, in, in through their own lens, you know, and that's, a, that's the nature of all research and, and art and science even, there's, there's going to be that level of interpretation. I think it's particularly challenging when you've got a very um, controversial or taboo topic because, um, you know, it, it makes it even more important as the researcher that you're crafting your message deliberately. So the, the big challenge I'm finding in my research is that I really want to talk about um, sort of the social nuances of fatigue, how we talk about it, how we understand it, how we make sense of the significance uh, of fatigue and sleep deprivation in our lives. But I find often as soon as people see the word fatigue, um, and I'm thinking of reviewers as well as audience members for various talks, immediately their thoughts go to duty hours, uh, work hour restrictions. And although that is absolutely part of the discussion and has to be part of the discussion, it is but a tiny sliver of, of what we're actually trying to kind of peel back and have some really honest conversations about. Um, it's interesting because you know, I think it's, uh, there is a very robust body of literature that has tried to tease out whether resident work hour restrictions are good or bad or not. Um, and it's, it's a very conflicted body of literature for lots of different reasons. Um, I think that's just sort of the low hanging fruit. It's the thing that's easiest to talk about and critique. Um, and it almost dis distracts us or creates a blind spot from having some of the more difficult conversations around things like you know, how are physicians remunerated? Um, do we actually, is it, is it financially beneficial for me to be working 
you know, 27 hours straight. I know for many physicians who have families, they would rather do, you know, four 24 hour call shifts than eight 12 hour, 12 hour call shifts, right? In their mind, the 12, 12 hour shifts mean they're missing twice as much time with their family, even though they may deeply feel that they're not on their game for the full 24 hours. So these are the, the challenges that I think we should be grappling with. Um, but again, with this sort of taboo topic, coming back to your original question, um, I think crafting the message and being able to anticipate the nerves that you might hit and the people that you um, might set off and how they might be interpreting your message in ways that you didn't even intend um, is really important. And what about the rewards? Have you experienced any nice uh, situations where you felt, oh, I'm making a difference here? I mean, there have been little wins along the way. Certainly, I was very honored uh, to be asked to speak to the Surgical Foundation's residents. So these are the residents across the surgical disciplines who are in their PGY-1 or, or sort of transition to, to discipline year. I don't know if I'm using that CBD terminology correctly, um, but these these are individuals that are just starting their, their surgical careers. And so I spent a lot of time crafting that, um, you know, infusing that presentation, certainly with my empirical research findings, but very conscious of the fact that there's no way I could have stood in front of these, you know, residents virtually and told them that, you know, I'm here as, as someone speaking on you know fatigue mitigation strategies that all they all I'm asking them to do is get more sleep you know I would have expected to be like proverbially you know um shoot off the stage if I had done that because I under I have lived experience I know what it means to be a surgical resident and, and a surgical staff and it's it's very easy for someone to stand there and say we'll just get more sleep and you won't be as, as tired you know that's actually not a feasible viable solution with the current system. I think those conversations are worth having, um, but I think we need to really go go beyond that and meet people where they're at as far as the current constraints of the system um, and the limitations of what they're able to do as far as getting getting more sleep. Um, so, so there's that piece is that I do feel like there's been some opportunities and, and that was you know, fairly well received. Nobody booed me. Um, the, the residents had some really thoughtful questions about how to mitigate their fatigue through their residency and beyond. Another small win was being invited to um, work alongside the uh, project sec secretariat for the uh, Royal College group that was looking at the fatigue risk management toolkit that has sort of gone out across the country um, as kind of a conversation starter for programs who are now actually obligated to have a fatigue risk management program in place. This is part of the accreditation standards now. And so it has a bit of teeth to it, which I think is really a great starting place um, to kind of create incentives for programs. And then I think on the other side, I've been really bolstered over the years through the conversations. As you know, qualitative research is, is, such, a, is a, such a fulfilling uh, process to get to have these one-on-one -on -one privileged conversations with individuals who in many cases literally pour their soul out to you um, and share things in a way that's very candid. Um, and so it's such a gift and, and it also, especially with some of the really deeply personal things that people have shared with me over the years, um, about struggles that they've had related to their um, their fatigue and, and trying to grapple with some of these unrealistic expectations that sort of the system 
both the training system and the healthcare system, you know, thrusts upon us. I remember interviewing someone who um, shared that that they had actually be struggled with an addiction to, to opiates um, through the course of their um, career. This was not an early career individual. Um, and and the, part of the reason that they'd done so is that um, they had no role model for um, someone uh, they had no role modeling um, for how to sort of dial back their practice. Um, their practice kept like ballooning and ballooning and the, the patient needs just kept growing and growing and growing. And at the same time in their personal life, um, their spouse was struggling with a terminal illness. Um, and so, you know, the, the opiate sort of gave them a little bit of a, an oomph to be able to keep going. And it was only, you know, in retrospect, and that this individual understood that a lot of this was coming out of this sense of pressure that, you know, you just keep going and you just keep pushing. And, and that's a very common thread, I think, throughout a lot of the, the interviews that I've done over the years is the sense that um, physicians were sort of um, socialized to believe um, and in some cases, our, our patients also believe and want to believe um, that, that we're somewhat sort of robotic and not, not to be held to the natural physiologic limitations of human performance, when obviously that's, that's just not the case. So I'm curious also, like, despite all that work that you have done on the fatigue as a social construct, it's been tremendous. Uh, and then you decided to do a fellowship in simulation. Uh, mm -hmm. how that happened that drove me into that sounds like yeah. a, detour. a bit of a detour yeah it's funny I think that's how you could describe almost all, all of the milestones in my career I did not set it was not a premeditated goal of mine I actually had had very little exposure to simulation during my residency training I was actually I was intending to finish residency and do a fellowship in contraceptive um, practices, basically family planning. And at the last minute, um, a mentor of mine, um, Dr. Glenn Posner, who's an obstetrician and simulation expert and educator in the Ottawa area, sort of um, reached out and, and asked if I would consider doing this fellowship. And you know, he made a good argument and obviously it was compelling because I, I, I took, I took him up on the offer, but essentially it, it seemed to fit well with my passion for medical education. Uh, and it seemed like an interesting direction to take sort of, I, I saw it as another tool in my toolkit and, and saw the potential that it held for conducting some really innovative research down the road, whether it was related to fatigue or not. And I have absolutely no regrets about doing it. It was a fabulous fellowship and it uh, allowed me to actually even do some locuming work in the Ottawa area. So all in all, it was an incredible experience. Talking about those advices that sometimes you get uh, throughout your career, are there any other like memorable advices that somebody have given you um, during the last few years that have stuck with you so far in your life? I mean, <laughs> there are many, as you know, we have, I am very fortunate to have, I mean, people such as yourself as mentors in my life and, um, and certainly lots of the scientists at Siri uh, have provided lots and lots of guidance over the years. 
I mean, I think of something that Lorelai has said to me when I was even going to, to Ottawa and even transitioning back here, um, you know, grappling with this, the, uh, transitions are hard, obviously, for, for anyone. And even though I was coming in that second transition, I was coming back to London. So for all intents and purposes, it should have been fairly smooth. I think, um, you know, she gave me advice to sort of um, keep my eyes and ears open and my mouth shut. <laughs> So, which which was her succinct way of saying, um, you know, to sort of keep, keep yeah, keep, keep aware of what's going on, pay attention, you know, do not miss out on any details and or opportunities. Um, but also, uh, she knows very well my tendency to, to say yes to almost anything and to, to jump on lots of different opportunities all at once. And so I think that was I'm not sure I did very well at listening to the advice, but it was very sound and reflected um, that she knows me very well. Okay, Tarin, um, in thinking about your career as a whole so far, um, what will be the turning point or experience that has given you the most memorable lessons so far? Hmm. I would say, so we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I was doing my PhD while I was finishing residency. And there were so many moments within those two sort of parallel paths that where, where things were really informing each other. So as I was and continue to sort of develop my professional identity now, having finished residency and now being in a faculty position and supervising residents and, you know, grappling with what that means from a autonomy standpoint, you know, how, how, how much leeway do you give them? You know, you, you want to be a supervisor that's, that's always available, but you also don't want to cramp their style. You want them to be able to develop a sense of independence. Um, I think similarly that, you know, so, so that's one example of this sort of um, the transition to, to faculty, which is always a bit tumultuous and full of a lot of self-reflection. And at the same time, while I was going through that transition to being faculty, I was also going through and continue to be going through a transition of what happens to you after your PhD? <laughs> um, particularly when you're a clinician scientist and have these sort of dual um, roles to juggle. And so I think that um, is in a similar way, I've started supervising, you know, master students and now some PhD students and you know, just trying to decide what sort of supervisor I am and, and how to give feedback on people's work um, and their writing and how to, you know, how to make suggestions without taking over and, and not being a micromanager and all of those things, I think. Um, so each of that, that main transition point, I think for me was, has been really a period of a lot of growth and a lot of um, meaningful reflection. The fact that both of my professional selves are going through the transition at the same time, I think is has its sort of advantages and disadvantages, but it's definitely something I've been conscious of even from the moment that I decided to, to pursue the graduate studies as a resident. Um, a lot of the aches and growing pains of, of taking on those new things and the sort of equal parts excitement and exhilaration of you know, that first paper you publish and in my, you know, the first forceps I did, like all of these things were happening in parallel. And that was really, and continues to be very meaningful. In going through all those lessons, it sounds like you're a person of transitions and also gathering many, many lessons. Um, 
what have you learned about yourself as a person? I have learned that I can be very hard on myself and also that in in having that knowledge and awareness of myself I've tried to harness that into um, being more open and sort of vulnerable certainly uh, but kind of just laying bare my um, my struggles, my flaws, uh, particularly, again, in that supervisory type relationship, whether it's with the, my residents or with my graduate students, um, I have learned that um, certainly, you know, many people struggle with things like imposter syndrome. That's very familiar to me, <laughs> without a doubt. And, and I do think that there is um, strength in being in a position, you know, of, of, mentorship or supervision and to be able to just own that and say you know this is what I struggled with too or um, you know these are the tips that I use to remember this or you know particularly in my in my medical world is um, I will you know I will own up to you know when I've forgotten a dose of something or I have to check the guidelines for this I make sure the residents know that that's part of what I'm doing because I I spent a lot of time in residency believing that once you graduated you know this sort of light would descend upon you and you had all the answers everything would be straightforward you would know exactly what to do when to do it and and it wasn't until I had some heartfelt conversations with um, someone who I consider a dear friend and colleague Dr. Shannon Armfield um, that she you know was brave enough to kind of lay there and say no 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 like so much uncertainty still it it does not vanish um, and that was so powerful for me um, that I've tried to sort of take that and incorporate it in again, both of my professional lives. So with graduate students and, and with the residents and students that I work with. That's great. Thank you for sharing that time. I have a couple more uh, questions before we close. Uh, the next one is related to you, back to your research in terms of you have fatigue as a social construct and then simulation and qualitative research. What's your next curiosity? What's next for you? What are you working on? I mean, the simulation and qualitative research piece is a big focus at the moment. I think um, I'm really excited to see if I can pull it off, to be quite honest with you. I think there's some really interesting um, projects that are on the go. We've, we've brought together a tremendous team, including yourself um, and you know our postdoctoral student, Dr. Rachel Pack. I've got a PhD student, Trevor, who is um, coming from paramedics. We've got a midwife on our team, Lauren uh, Columbus. Harrison Banner is an MFM that we're working with. So we've got a motley group of people who have come together. And I think that part is really exciting. This is the first time for me to be leading um, such a multidisciplinary and really multi-professional group as well. Uh, I think that that is what excites me the most. And then there's this sort of part of me that's curious to see just how creative we can get about pulling this off in the midst of a pandemic on top of it all. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And my final piece is related to what you open up with, like your personal interest in climbing and letting go from a trapezoid heights that I cannot even, even imagine. I was wondering, how is it connected to you being a researcher? What, what does it bring to you that you can use as a researcher? Mm -hmm. It's so such a brilliant question. I, so there's this beautiful um, 
it's an it's an excerpt. I don't actually know if it's a it's a poem per se, but it's called the trapeze. And actually, Shannon gave it gifted it to me. She printed it off and gave it to me when I was moving to Ottawa. I think I mean flying trapeze for me again, primarily in retrospect. When I was initially drawn to it, I just thought it was going to be something fun. But coming back to it over and over again, I've learned that it there is sort of a metaphor in there, uh, certainly about letting go. Um, there's a moment, this like split second um, when you're, so you've climbed up to the top platform that in and of itself doesn't bother me. I don't mind heights, um, but there's this split second when you're leaning over um, your toes are at the very edge of the platform. You see the, the world, the earth beneath you, um, and you have to lean forward to grab that bar. Um, and you're sort of, it. there's this moment, and, and of course that moment happens again when you let go or if you're being caught. Um, and so that sort of midway space of being between two, you know, stable, certain <laughs> elements, the bar and the platform. Um, and I think certainly in, in my professional life, there are plenty of moments on call where you're sort of somewhere in between your, your stable footing. Um, and I think that happens a lot in research as well. You know, a lot of research that's worth doing involves taking a chance and sort of letting go what you know to be true and safe and, you know, the sure thing um, and sort of reaching and extending yourself towards the, the uncertain and the unknown. It's exhilarating. It's also terrifying. You absolutely could fall. I think one of the beautiful things about being part of Siri is that there's that safety net, you know, that I certainly feel beneath me knowing that, um, you know, even in the most frustrating and seemingly hopeless, you know, moments and experiences, for example, submitting a paper four times for publication, that, you know, there are people that I can reach out to that will both say, you know what, I've been there, um, you're not alone, and also, I'm happy to have a look at the paper and give you some feedback. Like, I think it's a beautiful thing and I just couldn't be more grateful to be part of such a community. That's fascinating. I never had that connection between trapezy and the moment of being in the middle, which I believe- Suspended. <laughs> yeah, most of us have, as researchers, we've been there, but connecting that to a particular activity makes me think, okay, what will be an activity for me? And maybe our listeners could think about that too, mm -hmm. for that. It was very nice to hear that. Well, Taryn, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing your stories. Um, and thank you to our listeners for being here today. See you next time. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.